Um, this is fun. <laughs> uh, good morning, everyone. My name's Samara. I'm a curator and programmer. Uh, I've been working with the Goethe Institute and also Republica and um, the MUTEC Festival, which is a digital arts festival in Montreal, and the Montreal Documentary Film Festival, which is in November. I'm going to put this down. Um, I'm just going to take this off. And um, we, we've, we've been curating this kind of this exchange between um, VR creators and artists and theorists um, from Germany and Canada. It's been really wonderful because it's kind of a very open-ended exchange that's very much focused on breaking open the understanding that we have already had, kind of in, that's already been ingrained about how we understand VR and how um, kind of the, the pathways of, that VR has already charted in the world. And we're really trying to kind of open up new ways of um, relating to the medium and also um, exploring kind of new creative avenues as well as critical avenues. So the, the kind of the idea of the VRRV is that VR is reflecting on itself. It's reflecting on the digital society. And we have four projects that are in prototyping phase. So the idea was that we built these teams around lead thinkers who brought their data sets and research um, to the groups. And then um, each there were four different kind of um, other team members that were built around these thinkers that were bringing in different skill sets um, from the gaming background, from production, um, music and sound. And they together, they really developed these ideas together. So the whole we spent a week together in Montreal, and these teams were all in these imaginary spaces trying to visualize what this, how this data could be translated. Um, and so what they're doing here this morning is showing you where they're at at this stage. Um, the prototyping is going to continue in Berlin, and it's going to continue the next couple of months. Um, the pitching only happens in November, so we're giving a long period of time for the projects to develop creatively and for the teams to kind of explore all these different avenues. So that's what we'll be showcasing today is the, the prototypes at this stage, very quickly. So, yeah, that's VRIV. Um, so, welcome to Berlin. Um, and we are here uh, happy to team up with your efforts. Um, I'm, I'm speaking for the Performersion, a format that Alexandra Wolf, the program director of the Republica and the Performing Arts program, which I'm part of, uh, developed in 2016 and tries continuously to get experts from the fields of performing arts, digital technology, and digital arts together to think uh, about future possibilities without the necessity or the effort or the um, uh, the fate of economic um, sense. So um, we are happy that we um, organized an open call where everybody could apply with an interesting concept and uh, five of those Berlin-based artists or artist groups are um, now um, presenting in, a, in, a, uh, in very short presentations their state of work and thought at the moment. So I'm happy to welcome here on stage Martin Grünheit. Um, he's a, a freelance theater director and co-founder of the theater collective Cobra Theater Cobra. And Marcel Kanapke, he's a co-founder of the VR, Cyber Räuber VR Theater based in Berlin there. It's, I think it's your third time on Republica and your... So um, they went away already. So I'm happy, um, I'm curious and uh, welcome on stage. Thank you. So, good morning, everybody. I hope you can all hear me. I'm going to talk about our latest research and project. It's called the Cyber Theater. So, what is actually Cyber Theater? As you all know, classical theater these days has already ventured into the digital domain by streaming video, two-dimensional stuff, onto websites. But we thought maybe we can bring the experiences closer to the world of the whole 
world, so the internet, by ways of transforming and transmitting acting, the voice, the movements of the actors into cyberspace. What do we mean by that? We mean that we can actually capture the performance of the actors together on a physical stage and then transmit this into the cyberspace. These days, there are different platforms like Samsar or VRChat. And we, what we tried is not only to bring the actors in there, but also let them be represented by avatars. And these avatars can be as small as an ant or as big as a giant. So they have a pretty broad range of costumes that they can inhabit, which also gives the actors new possibilities to express themselves and work with each other by changing costumes very quickly. Also, there's the fact that the audience is now actually in real time present with the actors who are also showing their craft in real time, which enables a very, very fluid interactivity between a digital audience and uh, the real acting people on stage. Also, the stage is now fully digital, which means we can explore different kinds of aesthetics, can 3D scan objects or even build models just classically, like for video games. We can all bring that together in real time. Real time is very important for us because we've worked with um, capturing and recording people and putting them in virtual reality, but that's not comparable to what you actually witness in the classical theater realm. So what you want is authenticity by having something that is happening in real time, by ha having something that also vanishes after that, and that can people inhabit and enjoy with the actors on stage. Also, very important is that people can join in from different places with a laptop, for example, or a virtual reality headset, which gives them the ability to really inhabit the space of the theater play and maybe even interact with the actors. So um, for further um, possibilities and the experiences that we've collected by having some rounds of experience with that, um, I would ask Martin to tell you a bit about uh, the director's angle. Um, <coughs> yes, thanks. Um what is the potential for the theater? It's actually um, it open up, opens up um, the reach of theater. So it's um, it's everywhere in the world. Could it could happen everywhere in the world? Also, it could uh, different theater um, companies could join, uh, and also it opens up new dramaturgies that you can extend um, it totally in a international way. It's not. Um, it doesn't need to be stays in the room where it's. It is created, and also it's like um, theater beyond the website. It's it's the next level of theater uh, for the virtual space. You can actually really live in the virtual space now and play there, and it's um, also. Democratizing, democratizing, democratizing um, the um, theater uh, as you can. You, everyone could produce it. Everyone could try it, can, can join it. It's not any. It's not the Hochkultur anymore. It's not the Hochkultur anymore. So it could happen everywhere and with everyone. Yeah. Oh, we still have some time left, I guess. Right. So we have still a minute. So. 
Okay, maybe maybe one thing that we witnessed, um, all the actors, that we actually gave their digital wings in virtual reality, were extremely happy to test out this new kind of technology, this new kind of performance. And what is also very important is that we are able now to combine people in uh, New York with people in Berlin coming together to have the ultimate stage play and uh, physical space is not the limit anymore. And And also that you have like these two uh, realities of uh, being in the room, in the theater room, which could have a total different context than being in the virtual space. And so you have two different narrations um, happening in the same time. So this is also kind of an... Um, Maybe a final thought. We need to actually develop place for that kind of realm because it's entirely new and uh, we still don't really know what the capabilities in the end will be. Thank you very much, Marcel and Martin. Um, the next artist on stage um, took th her own place um, uh, in her pioneering efforts to um, conquer their dreams. Um, Paula Reisig, member of the Media Theater Collective Kansas. Welcome on stage, Paula. <laughs> Um, hi, uh, my name is Paula Reisig. I work in the fields of uh, mainly video, photography and new media and uh, very often in the context of theater. And uh, as he said, uh, I work together with the theater, Media Theater Collective Kansas and we developed um, our first app um, for the Treibstoff Theater Festival in 2017 in Switzerland, Basel. Um, this project, uh, it's called Inside Treibstoff. Um, it's a project between communication, audience de development, um, a journalistic approach, and video art. Um, the main structure of the app is a map surface similar to Pokemon Go or Google Maps. Or, um, and on that map you can find content points which contain video walks which you can do when you are there. Um, the videos we produced um, uh, they work similar to many works by Janet Cardiff, for example. Um, the, the, it's a really simple principle. They're site-specific, like I said. They're filmed at the exact, like, their exact location where you look at them. And um, it starts with a, a still picture so, so to, um, to help you to align your position correctly. And when the video is running, you just follow your smartphone, you follow the video in the, your device um, by your movement um, and uh, there's like a really simple immersive effect which doesn't use any VR or AR elements um, it's just by simply overlapping uh, um, the video image and also a three-dimensional sound layer um, with your surrounding which is identical almost identical with changes um, and that uh, causes an irritation in your mind because your mind can't always separate these layers. Um, the content we produced, uh, we produced together with um, the seven theater groups who were producing at the festival. It was a producing festival, so um, all the productions were uh, made there, like one month before the festival started. And... Um, uh, 
yeah, and together with them, we developed different um, formats and approaches. For example, we did um, simple interviews with them about their theater pieces, but also glimpses into their rehearsals and also small stagings where we, um, which worked some kind of uh, extensions for their pieces into public space. Um, in addition to that, we had two different, two other formats, uh, which were like short critics with uh, theater experts after the premieres of the pieces and audience uh, col uh, and collages of um, comments from the audience, uh, which was there. Um, in the future, we want to uh, focus on two different directions. Um, one is more like artistic-based video walks, um, which use the location-based uh, video and audio content principle. And the other one um, is projects who focus more um, on um, digital communication and audience development and to, um, to create a, uh, apps um, that combine these elements, but also with an approach that isn't uh, purely marketing-like. Um, um, in the conclusion, like, uh, uh, yeah, also the difficulties we faced were, uh, for example, that, uh, of course, our, we had a programmer we worked together with, and uh, programmers are much more expensive than people who work in the culture, like in theater, for example. And um, so we really had to be careful that it doesn't, the, the, the costs doesn't, don't explode. So I had to learn a little bit of unity and do everything I could. So he has to work as less as possible. And, um, and also we had to keep the framework really, really simple and just do the necessary things. Um, and also, it was um, difficult um, to finance uh, the project um, totally because the festival didn't pay for all of it. And um, it, like most of the funding, like there's not very much funding for projects who are between um, art and um, yeah, uh, communication. Um, is it over? Ah, okay. Good. Thank you, Paula. <laughs> Here on stage. The next one um, actually left theater for for some some way for good, um, but um, I'm deeply impressed by how he uh, came from writing dialogue in theater to now being a media artist and a software developer. Ricardo Gehn. Hey, hello. Um, yeah, um, I'm Ricardo Gain. I'm a software developer and media artist, so-called media artist. And uh, I'm working mainly in collaborative or collective ways. And I was working with the collective Moon Facilitator, uh, building immersive SMS walks uh, where we build software to... Uh, to uh, to, uh, to, to, to distribute SMS via our mobile phones which are acting as our servers 
and currently I am working in a collected collective out of the box together with Susanne Schuster from the Hauptsache Frei Festival in Hamburg. And uh, we are trying to enable collaborators to create simple algorithm facilitating an experience of randomness, assuming, uh, speculative assuming, uh, every movement in the city is being known and tracked and the service like Losting Algorithm is trying to build a platform, and that's what I'm talking about today, a platform for random movement in the city. So uh, we're actually not trying to uh, build like VR, like CGI VR or 360 degrees VR. We like to extend the reality with, with speculative virtu virtuality Uh, but like you have your body in the city and you move to the city it's so far and we are trying to expand our uh, thoughts of how is uh, what is actually software and what is actually software in uh, context of art and uh, what we make and still make is always hard uh, uh, what we make is hard to Uh, to develop because we have always in collective forms we have uh, a, a different kind of knowledge and skill so I always develop software and others do the content and stuff and I and but it's actually quite hard to overcome these barriers and uh, help um, that everybody is engaged in the production and that's why we Actually, don't build just one software, one like distribution software, like a server stuff. We build uh, a whole bunch of software. We we always build a platform because we need to uh, we need to have uh, all, we need to uh, to 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 have all the people in um, engaged in the process. And it's actually quite simple. I'm going to show you just the building blocks. It's a, a simplified building block system for how we trying to engage everybody in the context of making art. And that's uh, actually the, these building blocks are always uh, are also building blocks for our no, new system, Lost on Algorithm. And it's quite uh, simple and self-explanatory. Uh, what we have is we have always a kind of editor where you insert content, order content, load content, edit content, and export content files. And we have the content files. And the content files are actually the, the most important things because content files are ordered, uh, ordered in a logic-ordered content. And uh, these content files do, uh, uh, do have the problem that if you don't think in the forehand what content do you have and in what order do you want to... Uh, uh, to have the content uh, in the last part of, or if you are producing the content you have the problem if you want to make branching storytelling and you don't never considered to make branching storytelling you uh, have content file who is not providing this system you can't do branching storytelling and uh, yeah but in the last place we have a player something just an execution unit which is actually doing uh, yeah executing the content which is being uh, edited and blow, uh, and ordered in the forehand and stored in the content files and you have the server and stuff to provide Uh, to yeah, interconnect all these systems. And um, in Lesson Algorithm, we not just only use this system, 
for us ex, as uh, artists, we use this system to provide uh, uh, making algorithms for the city um, for everybody, for all the people in the city. And they can exit it via our platform online. And yeah, I need to. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, this is. Oh, I'm I'm just over. Okay. Yep. Okay. Ah, one one thing I have to say because what is actually quite important about platforms is that uh, we use platforms as a critical practice, and we we not just only use it to generate content. We want it to be a critical content, and we want to have it a critical practice of. Executing content. Yep, <laughs> that's it. Thank you very much, Ricardo. And I'm, I'm sure that uh, not only Ricardo, but all our um, panelists uh, this morning are available for further questions and talks after this presentation. So, our uh, the last artist we will now present to you in that block is Daniel Wetzel from the renowned theater group uh, Rimini Protocol. And um, he's been um, working in the field of immersive theater installations for years. I know him as um, the first one who really used GPS-triggered sound files in, in somehow similar uh, city walks. And um, his uh, theater collective um, brought uh, installative uh, situation rooms to perfection. Also, he his work coined the phrase experts, everyday experts in um, in um, in theater settings. And I'm very glad that he came all the way from Athens today to have a four-minute presentation for you, ready on his, like, two decades of work. Uh, stage is yours, Daniel. <laughs> uh, so... Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for bringing me uh, from Athens here. Um, we we are old school in the sense that we're always interested in uh, interested in the media that are not um, uh, hip, uh, the next hype. Actually, we're interested in media as soon as they are customer used, proof. So at the moment, we are interested in working with rather with smartphones than with VR. Um, VR is not yet there because uh, we are not there yet. This is so hip and um, you need a lot of money to get these goggles and everything. So um, this is just slipping through projects that we are at the moment uh, touring. Um, immersive, this word I used since a year before I, I didn't know what it is. For us, theater is always um, an act of participation and an act of coming together. Uh, you are the audience, I'm here. That's one structure. Other structures provide other possibilities. So, um, for example, uh, here um, you are audience, but you're walking through the museum, in this case, in, through Neues Museum in Berlin, and uh, you're communicating with the system that we provide, that is the stage design, that is the server, that is the software that uh, tracks everyone that walks through the museum, that participates. You communicate through gestures, like you're acting in the sense of uh, deciding yes or no, stating yes or no. You're listening to sound files that actually don't really have to do with the exhibits in the first uh, place. However, they deal with um, surveillance and with uh, uh, secret services and how they collaborate and interact. So um, there's like a level of interaction between 
museum goers that know about this. They have some sort of the secret theater code and they communicate through uh, notebooks that they have in which um, smartphones are implemented. And uh, what we learned the last years is that it's, it is possible to invest most of the fundings that you get for stage design into code. Then the stage is not visible, but things are possible that uh, you otherwise couldn't um, play. And theater, on the other hand, is always the possibility to play things that you otherwise cannot experience. Uh, so this is a piece in which all the stage design apart from the tablecloth, uh, went into this little Raspberry Pi uh, that uh, Raspberry Pi is called, huh? Raspberry Pi, um, where, you, um, uh, where the script is implemented. We scripted shows that they happen worldwide, actually. It's actually called uh, Home Visit Europe. You can go on the website of this project and see results of each particular performance that happened. Each performance uh, happens on a table in another apartment. Somebody privately uh, invites, then the theater audience goes. And then this little black thing, we call it a robot, prints out, say, the scenes. It has five acts. It's about solidarity and collaboration. And um, the play evolves as we kind of always pick the next printout and complete the task, which is mostly a task of telling something, asking something, voting about something, and so on. <clears throat> um, and one task is to listen to the table. Um, I did a performance in, uh, within the framework of um, our tetralogy called uh, State. Hoppa, hoppa, Lathos, one second. Um, Start, State, um, we did three pieces um, that deal with, four pieces that deal with the question where we are in the relation between State on the one hand and uh, democracy and participation on the other. Um, let me try to get to that photo again. I can't enlarge in this mode, huh? So, uh, state three is called Dreaming Collectives. And for me now, it's the prototype for a piece of uh, theater that I actually want to develop for youngsters, uh, say, in the, from the age of uh, 10, 11, uh, because they use smartphones more, almost more enthusiastic than us, and they know better how to open what where and so on. So I think it's time that uh, smartphones become some sort of a prop or stage design element for children's theatre. And the other thing is that I'm interested in the cloud as a, as a stage. So provided you guys would be now all linked through one system that communicates with all of you, we could then find out what you see and what you state in the mode of clicking and so on. Time is up. Bubble Jam is the project. I'm looking for helpers and, uh, and collaborators. It, I rehearse it in Athens, but it's going to be also where you live. So if you're interested, talk to me. So thank you very much, Daniel. I will now um, hand the stage over to Samara um, and, um, and the artists and thinkers and experts she's working with. And uh, then we will wrap it up in the end with a short other artist presentation from Berlin. So we'll see each other again. Um, welcome, Samara, again. Thank you. So I'll just, um, one of our team members is um, absent. What we have uh, happening this morning is the four thinkers um, that, around whom the teams were built will be presenting. One of the thinkers is uh, sick, but he actually was here last year giving a talk called Deep Shit, Paul Fagefeld. Um, he gave kind of a new iteration of that talk to us and proposed it as kind of a starting point for VR, RV. Um, and, oh, not this one. Oh, yeah. Sorry, just to load it. Not to, we're going to put safe trajectories. Yeah. Um, and so his, his, 
his work is going to be working with um, the artist um, Sam Walker, who is the guy who programmed the VR project with John Raffman, um, and also with DPT, who uh, they, they did The Enemy with Kareem Ben Khalifa, who's based here. So they're, they're working on a project that's exploring kind of um, deep sea mining and the deep web as kind of these metaphorical spaces. So that's Paul Fagafed's presentation in a nutshell. I'd like to introduce Liam Maloney, who will introduce his, his, his work. Um, hey everybody. I'm very grateful to be here. This is a really cool setting to, to talk about these ideas and, um, and the last five presentations were really inspiring to me. Um, I started, my, my journey to this stage has, began five years ago. Um, I was working as a photojournalist um, on the border of Syria and Lebanon. And I was living in a refugee camp uh, that housed 115 Syrian refugees from the city of Homs in Syria. Um, and uh, over the course of my stay there, I, I noticed that, that one of the main activities that happened tonight was people would get on their cell phones and text home and find out what was happening on the other side of the border. They'd text their friends and family who were under siege and find out, you know, what they were doing to get across the border, what their sort of logistics plan was, uh, and whether they were still alive. Um, and, and this set the stage for my first immersive project on the Syrian war. The project that I want to talk to you today about is also about the Syrian war, and it's also about the impact of smartphones on the way we understand the conflict. Uh, some people call the Syrian war, the smartphone war. Um, it's the first conflict to be mediated almost entirely by user-generated content, videos, text messages, uh, Facebook pages, whatever, you name it. Um, because it has become so dangerous for Western journalists to work in Syria uh, without being um, under the thumb of the regime, most of what we understand, what, what's happening, is, is coming through um, from citizens who are brave enough to walk into the fray with their smartphones or whatever and record these scenes of devastation. There are over two and a half million videos posted to YouTube um, that document human rights violations, both by the regime and by other uh, actors. And they're being deleted on a daily basis by uh, sites like YouTube and Facebook. Um, what I wanted to do was explore this media that nobody watches um, because it's either too gruesome or uh, too upsetting or too brutal or too traumatizing. Um, I wanted to find a way to bring this content which one day, if it still exists, will be used to prosecute people for crimes against humanity. I wanted to find a way to bring this content to people in a fresh way, and I thought that VR would be the perfect uh, media to, to explore these ideas. Um, we often think of VR as this space where, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's very glittery. You know, there's a lot going on. You try and impress people with all the stuff that you can pack into this 360 space that you surround yourself in. Uh, for me, VR was, was more like 
an opportunity to put people in uh, an isolation bath or, you know, in, to, to remove all of those things, to remove all those distractions and reduce uh, these types of media to something very, very simple and very conceptual. So the project that I'm working on now, uh, you know what, forget the slideshow, it doesn't matter. Can we pull it up? The project I'm working on now is called Trajectories, and um, for every person who ever recorded a, a, the aftermath of a bombing or a gas attack with their smartphone and walked through the scene filming, I mean, what, what, do you, what are the bare essentials here? I think the, uh, the act of bearing witness is really interesting to me, and if you reduce it to a, a movement, you know, you have this camera moving through space. And this is what you see if you look at these videos. Often the air is full of dust or smoke or, or both. Um, the scenes are brutal, difficult to watch. But somebody had to go there with their smartphone and and record this scene. So what I want to do is, is reduce that to uh, the path that the person who was recording the scene took. So if, if I start recording here and I move through the scene and cross over a, a wounded person here and then climb over on some rubble here, that is a trajectory. And I imagined all these, all these videos existing somewhere you know, on a server and all of these different trajectories resembling the pathways of, of fireflies. And imagine if you were in this darkened space and all you could see were these traces of light moving around recording these atrocities. What would that look like? What if you removed the visual content? Um, as, a, as a photojournalist, I'm used to making pictures that, that might end up on the front page of a newspaper, but I, are we done? Yeah. Um, but I realized that a lot of these pictures start to look like the same pictures and you know you're photographing the same stuff over and over again. Um, maybe it's time to get away from visual representations of conflict and find a more conceptual approach that uh, can introduce a bit more of an empathetic response from viewers. Anyways, thanks. There's a lot more to it. So all, all of these projects that are presenting here with VRRV are looking also for collaborators. So if you're interested in what you've just heard and what you're about to hear, please like approach Liam and, um, and, and everyone else. So I'd like to invite Tess Takahashi and Nalai Nukshuk up to the stage. They're going to talk about piercing the darkness. Pierce the darkness. <laughs> Thanks. Does this, does this one well? Okay. Hey. Hi, guys. Hi, everyone. So I had come into this project thinking about data visualization and the ways that we encounter the world both from above and from afar and um, through our bodies, through our senses. But this project has really been a very collaborative one, one that came out of an idea, a kernel of an idea that Nyla was thinking about. 
Yeah, so I have been producing VR 360 um, for the past few years, and I'm really fascinated about um, the creation of presence and also creating space using 360 um, directional sound design and kind of placing you within a space. And so I wanted to really explore that, and as a big fan of genre, um, I really wanted to kind of make something that was like scary and exciting and a lot of fun. Um, so I kind of had this like a uh, very small idea that became something with uh, the collaboration of my team, this idea of being within some sort of maze with very little light and really just relying on your senses of sound to keep yourself from uh, a threat of a monster that really is kind of... Uh, stalking you within this kind of place of limbo. And so when I was working with my team, it was really exciting because we took that and we're like, well, how do we uh, really take sound to the next level? And we, uh, one idea was, what if you make a sound, like a snap, and that creates a light? But then the... And, and then the idea of the monster is attracted to sound. So within this, this maze, you have to kind of create sound in, in order to illuminate your way while also not making enough sound that you're going to be consumed by the monster. And then we kind of, that kind of um, led to this idea of having it be a multiplayer VR video game where it's two people trying to find each other within the space. Um, if you want to expand on that. Yeah, so two people trying to find each other. But at first we weren't sure if that was the goal or if they were trying to get to a certain place. So the goal is to find the, find the other person. And each of those people have their own tone, their own kind of droning tone that as they get closer to one another gets louder. Um, and when they finally find one another, if they do avoid the monster, those tones merge and produce a new tone and a new, a new melody. The monster also has its own sound, which is kind of a combination of a threatening purr <laughs> and wail, wailing sounds. But you never see the monster. The monster is really just, just blackness. So in the space, which we're envisioning as kind of a, a two-dimensional linocut forest in a three-dimensional 3D space, it's very, very dark, but you're guided by your senses of, of sound and proprioception, kind of moving yourself through the space using the handsets to, to crawl through this forest. Yeah, so it's, um, it's something that we think is going to be a lot of fun um, and really kind of play with uh, these senses in an interesting way and use sound as, as um, light and a visual representation of sound. Um, and it's something that also has a lot of potential for scalability. Um, you know, this can exist as like a prototype, but then it's like easy to see where it can expand from there. And also something that we see as being able to exist in a space like this in a gallery setting, um, um, and then also has the potential to kind of be something that you can use at home as well. Yeah, we want it to be really beautiful. So we were thinking that it can both play in arcades and in gallery spaces. And in the gallery space itself, instead of just a black box, we could have these kinds of Linocut um, forest imagery around the cube. And the, ma and the line leading up, instead of just being a line of people waiting to put on headsets, could be built like a maze that would um, 
kind of mirror or mimic the kind of maze that you find yourself in once you're in the VR space. And right now we're a team, Tess and I are from Toronto, we've got a game designer from Montreal and we're also working with a 3D modeler in Hamburg and um, this has been a really fun collaborative experience so we're always looking for um, more people to be involved and, and feedback. So you know in this game that you've, you've won when you meet the other person and your two tones merged and you're able to pierce through the night. You know you've lost when you're consumed by the darkness and the monster swallows you. Thanks, guys. I always get feedback when I come on stage. Great, thank you. Um, all of these people have wonderful biographies. It would take all the time just to introduce them all. So I encourage you to visit the Goethe Institute website, VRV, if you want to know more about them. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce Christiana Mietke and Johannes Helbaga, who are going to um, talk about Mindfuck. <laughs> yes, I'm hoping, I hope you're ready for Mindfuck. Just... I think we need a little while, but I'm already going to start talking. So um, when Samara approached me to ask me if I wanted to participate in this workshop, I just at the beginning I was I have to admit I was very hesitating. Think like, ah, oh, it's very you know open. You have all these people together, just bringing ideas. And after only like two uh, two days of working together, the first ideas already like should already appear and come out. I wasn't very sure about this process, but I have to admit the fact that to put people from different backgrounds, programmers, artists, journalists, producers, in one room and give them a very, very limited amount of time, which was basically in our case two days and a half, is a great idea because that forces you to restrict yourself to kind of the simple ideas and very often those are the best ones. So um, when we go to our, our subject, Mindfuck, I let me tell you a little bit the way I came from. So I think kind of the idea started in a way elaborating on a project um, that I did three years ago with the Canadian director, Brett Gaylor. It was called Do Not Track. Um, and it was um, an interactive web series um, about online tracking. So what we did was kind of the promise was we show the users... Um, what the internet knows about them and what can you find out about them. And it was a personal way of telling a story. So we did personalized interactive videos. And I particularly worked on an episode about Facebook. And in this episode, what you can do is you can log in with your Facebook data and then you can find out what can be found out just analyzing your likes. You could find out the age, the gender, the interest, the character profiles. You could then make assumptions about you know, risk profiles that could be interested for insurances and so on and so on. And this was particularly scary for me because we kind of worked together with a scientist called Mikhail Kosinski, who happened to be this guy who kind of made the scientific framework that was then later misused by Cambridge Analytica. So this was three years ago. And then I continued working um, on similar subjects, also making a web series about the future of humanity and about brain implants and what happens. And all of a sudden I kind of got the connection of those two um, subjects. And when I specifically heard can you put this, in here? this guy giving a promise, what if you could type directly with your brain? This was at like one year ago. And it kind of 
show the world how Facebook and many other tech companies from Google to all of those companies working on ways to work on brain-computer interfaces to basically kind of get what is inside of our brain to then, I mean, the promise is to steer devices and to kind of control the world with your thoughts, which is a big dream. And I'm not sure if it's actually ever going to happen. But the problem I see is if we start using uh, these devices, be it as like EEG or, or even in, inside our heads with like um, brain chips, even if you're not able to kind of rule the world entirely with our thoughts, the information that can be taken out is very, very intimate. And is very, very, um, yeah, even if it's just um, different states of mind in connection with all the other data that is already collected by us, uh, it tells so much more about ourselves than we even dream of. Because this is really our unconscious self. These are things we cannot influence. And these are things that can be used to manipulate us and to be used against us. So um, I started to look more into what does biodata actually really mean. I really kind of realized this is like the next frontier. This is the next passion of privacy that is being taken. And there's a lot of investment from tech companies to the DARPA, which is the, res the research agency of the US Defense Ministry, to kind of get into these technologies. And it's usually a very abstract topic, so I wanted to find a way, how can you make the user feel what's happening here, both the good side and the power, and also the threat that comes along with. And with the team um, at, uh, at Montreal, we were really able to kind of in my way, in my um, point of view, found a way how to make, make the user feel and go through a personalized story in VR to kind of really see what can happen here. And the basic idea behind Mindfuck is using your biofeedback, so you will wear an EEG, you will wear other sensors to kind of influence the experience, to influence what's happening inside your, in, inside your mind. So I would like to ask you to all close your eyes, please. To all close your eyes, yes. So you're wearing a headset now and you're in this round space. It's all kind of very comfortable. It's round. And you realize just with your breathing, the, the space expands, contracts. And you can see that the, your pulse is having little reflections on the floor. The music is in tone with your pulse. And then this voice asks you to relax. And you realize with relaxation, the colors change, the music is changing. And then you might get excited because of that. And you realize, oh, this has an impact as well. And then a face appears in front of you and introduces you him or herself as you. It's your digital self. It's, it's basically you. It knows you more intimate than probably your partner knows you because it already has all this data. And this face then says, well, let me show you how to put this, this data into power. Let me show you what you can do with this. And it kind of offers you maybe a ball and ask you to concentrate on it. And then the ball, when you concentrate enough, kind of boasts into a million little dots and you can play with it and you can dance with it and it's really comfortable. 
And just when you really have a lot of fun, you think like, wow, this is so great. The kind of voice starts to make assumption about you. And it starts to kind of ask you things and tell you things that you might not want to hear, but they're true because he knows you. He has access to your brain data. He has access to your other data. He can really make assumptions that make you feel uncomfortable. So I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen now because we have, been, we have made um, a great story, but I mean, I think it's too early this process to talk too much about it. But uh, what basically going to happen that, that your data is used against you and you can on this way both feel how great it is and how dangerous it already also is to kind of give people kind of access to this kind of data as you just did in the experience. So the time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you, Christiana. Thanks, Johannes. Um, I just would like to encourage you to pick up these flyers if you see some around. There's more presentations happening this afternoon. At 4.15, we're doing Stories We Tell. And at 5.30, we're doing Visualizing the Invisible. So these are continuations of the conversations we were having in Montreal with all of these excellent guests. Um, Julian, do you want to introduce the next speakers? Thank you, Samara. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, is Lindsay Drury by accident already here? Huh. So, um, Lindsay, um, thank you very much for coming. It's, um, um, I didn't recognize you because all pictures of you I could find on the internet, you are wearing goggles and headgear. So, uh, welcome, glad to have you here. Um, stage is yours. Yes, I have one. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Then and I will then switch. I'm sorry, I don't read German, so how do I turn it into name? I will switch it in just a second, right? Okay. Can you hear me? Okay, it works. Amazing. So uh, my name is Lindsay Drury and uh, I'm here to talk about a, a piece that I did uh, with a, an artist from New York City named uh, Matthew D. Gant. And it was uh, called Atelier House Drost. It was a work that we made for a particular room in uh, East Berlin. Uh, it was from the old uh, um, Australian embassy in East Berlin that has been transformed into an artist space. And that particular room, um, you can see on the, the top picture there. Um, in that picture, it's filled with uh, like a Photoshop images of IKEA furniture. So we, we brought in a lot of IKEA furniture into that room, organized the IKEA furniture in, a, uh, in that way, and then uh, replicated that space in virtual reality. And um, then basically we put myself, uh, who works as a dancer, inside of the Atelier House space. Um, I could see the, the virtual reality uh, version of the room, and then I was moving through the actual space of the room. But the thing that we did was we made the two rooms 
a little bit different from each other. A little bit different in terms of the size, a little bit different in terms of uh, the placement of things. So my sense of the tactility of the room as I moved through it was just a little bit off. And we slowly worked uh, over the course of a week on the idea of what it, exactly it is um, for me to learn that my sensory, my sense of sight is just not exactly right. So we slowly trained me basically to perceive um, that the space that I was in um, was just not exactly what I was seeing. And then we, uh, we made the virtual space so that I could move the chairs and objects around inside of the space. And what I started to do over the course of the work was to move the table to where the chair in the real space would be, to move the chair to where the table was. And I started to treat the objects in the space as uh, representatives of each other and to attempt to memorize, basically, um, the relationship between these two spaces. So, in the end, uh, what I experienced the, the space as was an uh, incorrect representation of itself. And the more that I moved, performed and danced through the space, the more that I shifted it into incorrectness. So, at first, the basic idea that we had was about um, thinking of the virtual as a layer of uh, visible reality inside of a tangible space. And that's why we came up with the idea of the Drost. But in the end, um, what we created was uh, this sense of um, the space as a division of embodiment. And so, um, basically, where we're going from this point uh, with this particular project is into the, the idea of what it is to create for a single performer um, a multiple state of embodiment and to uh, use that as a way of um, actually uh, confusing performers and uh, creating for them a, a very kind of complex relation to their own body. And for us, that's a, about this issue of cognitive and sensorial dissonance. So um, because my collaborator and myself are very new to virtual reality, um, he decided to learn virtual, virtual, how to build virtual spaces in Unity from scratch. And myself, I'm a PhD student in history, so I approached virtuality um, with no previous knowledge of how to engage with it. And then we gathered our equipment um, through donations in New York City. So at this point, we're very much looking for the opportunity to relate to other artists who work in virtual reality in order to uh, develop relationships and continue our work. Thank you. Thank you very much. So now, um, since we had a very interesting um, panel talk yesterday evening, also facilitated by Samara and the Goethe Institute, um, we came to one more interesting point that we just want to throw at you instead of Paul Feigelfeld, who couldn't make it today. It's Katharina Haferich, a Berlin-based artist, and she took what Charles Davis yesterday in her keynote mentioned, that VR might um, develop to be an arena for metaphors. Seriously, you can already take the stage. And, um, and she um, used VR 
um, as an arena to um, make her own dreams. Uh, but she will t talk about it himself, uh, herself. And uh, she used to work with the Institute for um, Political Beauty, the ones who put in the, the Holocaust Memorial into the backyard of the um, neo-fascist uh, Thuringian um, uh, politician. So welcome, Katharina, and thank you for your spontaneity. Thank you, Julian. Um, yeah, my name is Katrina Haverick. I'm a performance artist based in Berlin and um, I have prepared a show. Um, it's a live art show that will premiere in June. Um, I worked on it for three years. It involves a naked man hanging upside down from the ceiling and a live horse circling that man, wrapping him up with a ribbon. And I was like, all right, this is going to be such a nightmare to sort of show again because it's like, uh, like logistically just really difficult. And I was thinking about archiving and I was thinking about um, 2D installations, you know, to sort of like show it more and widen my reach. And then, um, and then I thought about virtual reality as a mean as a means of uh, sort of reproducing a dream that I had because my show is based on a dream. <clears throat> And also as an invitation for the audience to um, take the position of the dancer, because the naked man is um, a dancer. And um, we only just finished shooting, which is why I don't really have so much material here with me. And I'm very new to the whole virtual reality thing. And at this point, I don't quite know whether it's going to work and how exciting it's going to be for the audience to experience, which is why I uh, also wanted to use this opportunity to invite you to come and see our beta version at um, 48 Stunden Neukölln Festival in uh, Neukölln, Berlin, in June this year. And um, yeah, I don't have all that much to say at this point. I think uh, I was really excited by Medien Board Berlin Brandenburg. Um, they funded this uh, project despite it being art, is what they said, which is what I found quite entertaining. And um, I just quickly wanted to say that um, I'm very thankful for the team that I put together for this. I work with IntoVR. Uh, I think they may be here today as well. And they were very, um, very open to this, although they're kind of mostly focused on video journalism. When I approached them, they were very um, excited about trying all sorts of different things with their cameras. And I found a sound designer who works in installation, who will work on the sound because I think um, what we really want is like a, a very exciting space to sort of like not just visually, but also orally, because what we're going to have is the, the, the audience member will walk into a room which bark milk um, on the floor. And what we have is we're going to slowly pull him upside down. Um, and then he will hang like the person in the live installation. And then he will put on the goggles and the headphones. And we will, uh, we will then wrap him up like what he's seeing in the video when the horse is running around him, circling him, wrapping him up in very, very nice, very comfortable ribbon. And those of you who sort of uh, know that children like being wrapped up and feeling really cozy is kind of the sensation that we want to play with and see whether, uh, whether that's going to be a nice sensation in the end. And I think what I like about it is because when you think about performance art, you know, you always think about like um, performance artists putting themselves into difficult situation physically, you know, something that's very challenging. And what I like um, 
is to also ask quite a lot of the person who wants to come into this experience, you know, because it's not just about putting on the goggles, but you have to be sure not to be drunk, not to have eaten so recently, and a few other things, you know, make sure that the heart is okay so that you can actually take part in this experience. So, um, yeah, we will try it with a few people, and uh, maybe if you want to come and join us uh, for the beta version, I'll be very excited about your feedback. Thank you very much, Katharina. So now we're going to wrap up this uh, first.